That's where the sound guys make their money there, when the worship leader gets songs out of order. All right. Scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 29. Beginning in verse 12, the Holy Scriptures read, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter then by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when, finished, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me? Father, we just ask that through your Spirit you would be our teacher. Help us to understand these words, not just intellectually, but in a way that penetrates the affections of our hearts. Lord, we have some difficult truths to look at this morning, and so I ask that I wouldn't use this text as a club, but that through your Spirit and your power, it would be used as a means of helping your people to be stronger in the Lord, and maybe even, Lord, to call some to you for salvation today. Help us now as we look at this text. Help me to say your words and not mine, and we'll give you all the praise, the glory, and the honor for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Oregon Trail was a 2,170-mile route from Independence, Missouri, to Oregon City, Oregon, and it was used by roughly 350,000 settlers who were looking to begin a new and better life of prosperity out west. 
But in order to reach this new land, it was not a safe journey. In fact, this trail claimed somewhere around 30,000 lives. It had an average of 10 to 15 deaths per mile. That's a lot of deaths. That's a long distance. That's from all the way out east all the way to out west. In fact, one in 10 travelers would never successfully complete the journey across the Oregon Trail. Now, as bad as that is, I actually thought the stats were going to be a little bit worse because I grew up, many of you probably did too, but I grew up in school playing the video game Oregon Trail, and I always died every single time. Like, this was a brutally dark and twisted game. Like, I never make it. I never made it. Even when I picked the banker, like, I didn't get it very far. If you don't know what I'm talking about, either you're too young or too old, but it's a dark and twisted game. But on the Oregon Trail, travelers faced death, they faced disease, they faced rattlesnake bites, and right there, I'm out. I'm not going out west. Starvation, dehydration, being murdered, and a host of other terrible accidents. And this was not a short journey either. In fact, many people would take upwards of six months to make that journey, all right? Which I find crazy because for me, if I'm traveling even by car after six hours, I'm done. You're buying me a plane ticket or I'm not going any further. But this was six months they would spend traveling across the states. So here's the question. Why did they risk it? Well, for many different reasons. For some, it was for the fame and the riches after gold had been discovered out west. They wanted to get rich. Some risked it to join their family members who had already made this journey out west. And some were simply hoping for a new and better life away from their problems, their worries, and their hardships. But not everyone thought that way. Not everyone traveled this trail. Not everyone saw the Oregon Trail as being worth the risk. The reward wasn't worth it to them. It wasn't worth the hardship. It wasn't worth the difficulty. And so instead, actually, the majority of people didn't make this journey. They passed up the opportunity of a new and better life while the minority set out upon this difficult path, believing that it would be hard, but believing that ultimately in the end, it would absolutely be worth it. Church, in Matthew chapter 7, we come to the very end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he's telling us, we have a choice to make. We have two trails before us. And we have to decide which path we're going to follow. The first path he describes as the broad path, the easy path. And though the thing is about this trail, this easy path, though it's easier right now, in the long run, make no mistake, that is not going to end up in an easy or easy relaxing situation. It's a much harder path in the long run. Second path is the narrow path, right? It's the hard path, which few find it, he said. And though that path is without a doubt difficult now, it is infinitely easier in the long run. What path is he talking about here? He's talking about the path to the kingdom of heaven and the path to hell. That's what Jesus is talking about. The first path is the hard path, the narrow path. And as Jesus says, this is traveled by few. Now, why is this called the narrow path? 
Open your Bibles, look at Matthew chapter 7 with me. Look at verse 14. As verse 14 tells us, it's, the, it's narrow, the gate is narrow, the way is hard, and there are few who find it. And so here's a question we have to ask ourselves. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that there are few who actually find the path to heaven and successfully cross it? Or like our culture, do you believe that, hey, you know, as long as you're just a good person, as long as you believe in God, you know, and you're not like Hitler or somebody, you'll make it. It might take you a while, but you know, you'll get there. Do you believe that? Or do you believe what Jesus says? Because right, make no, make no confusion about this, all right? Jesus, his claim here is absolutely repugnant to our culture. He's making an exclusive claim. He's not only saying few find it, but I am the only way that you will find this. This is a very exclusive claim. So do you believe that? Do you believe that the path to heaven is narrow? Do you believe that the path to heaven is a hard road? Or is it an easy road where you just kind of add Jesus to the American dream and it's really not that inconvenient and you'll make it? Do you believe like our culture that basically all religions, all religious paths lead to God? Well, if so, let me encourage you not to think that Because if you think that, you don't understand the extreme difficulty of this trail. You haven't done your homework to look at what you actually need to cross this treacherous trail. For just as an unequipped pioneer, if they just set out and like, I'm crossing this trail tomorrow. Oh, really? Did you pack? No, I'm just going. They're not going to make it. All right? And so too neither can an unequipped spiritual pioneer hope to successfully cross heaven's trail. And so here's the truth. If we want to cross heaven's trail, we got to know what we need. And what we need are three things, and here they are this morning. To cross heaven's trail, we need first an external righteousness, secondly an internal righteousness, and third an exclusive reliance. Those are the three things we need if we're going to cross this trail. So let's unpack this this morning. As we finish out Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we look back and we realize something that Jesus has made explicitly clear to us, and it's this. Jesus does not wink at sin. Jesus' view of God is not a God who winks at our sin. It's a God who takes the righteous requirements of the law very, very seriously. Back at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus had to say about the requirements of obeying God's law. And this is in Matthew 5, 18 through 20. Here's what he says. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that sound like a God who winks at sin? Kind of the grandpa who sits around and is like, oh, those little grandkids are just little devils. No, not at all. Look at what Jesus says here. Not an iota or a dot will pass away. That's basically like... The English equivalent of saying, you know, the little dot on your eye, that's going to bind. But don't even miss one of those little dots on your eye, even in one of your words, all right? And then Jesus offers another serious warning 
not just against those who would relax it themselves, but against those who would encourage others to embrace this same hakuna matata, no worries mindset to God's law. He says, don't you dare do it. Don't you relax it. Don't e- I'm not talking about even break. I'm saying even relaxing it. Don't you relax it, and don't you encourage anybody else to relax it. I want to ask you about this relaxing of God's law, and I want to ask you, when we look at the state of the evangelical church, would you say that Christians err towards strict obedience of God's law or towards relaxing God's laws? We don't even need to answer that, do we? we? We know, right? Professing Christians have gone well beyond relaxing God's laws into flagrant disobedience. Are you familiar with the Barna Group? Anybody ever heard of this group? It's like a research group that conducts polling and studies. Sometimes their studies are kind of annoying because they're disheartening, but they put them out anyways, and they help us learn things about the state of the church. And if you look at the data that they regularly put out, you know what becomes abundantly clear? The Christian church is messed up, big time messed up. In fact, most professing Christians, as we said, have gone beyond relaxing God's law into blatant disregard of it. Let me give you a few examples of this. Here's what their research showed. 60% of people said that having faith matters more than which faith you have. 63%, that means they're lost is what that means right there. If you believe that, you're actually lost. Because what does Jesus say? I am the way the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by any religious path they want. No, but by me. So having faith, I could have faith in the Easter Bunny. It's not going to save me. Only faith in Christ saves. 56% of professing Christians admitted that they tried to avoid sin, while the rest didn't. They just like, ah, whatever. No big deal. No worries. 49% believed it was their responsibility to tell others about Jesus if the situation was appropriate, which means over half don't believe that they are to share their faith. They don't believe the Great Commission is a command that we are to bring the gospel to all the nations and make disciples. And here's a really disheartening statistic. 64%, not of men, but of Christian men, and 15% of Christian women admitted to viewing pornography at least on a monthly basis. Christians have gone from attending church three to four times a month down to maybe once, twice, and often, the studies show, even less. After 2020 and the COVID-19 crisis, the number of Christians who now blatantly disregard God's command to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, one-third of Christians are doing that now. They haven't come back. And we're not talking about shut-ins here. We're not talking about people who can't physically get out and about to church. We're talking about people who are perfectly capable of getting out and about. People who will readily attend the grocery store, readily go to the restaurant, go to work, go to get together with friends and families. But when it comes to God's command, God's law to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, they disregard it. They relax it. And you know what makes this even worse and more frustrating? How many of the highly respected evangelical leaders are encouraging them to do that? Yeah, I put it in the scare quotes. It was on purpose, all right? How many of them have encouraged people to relax this command? 
Many of them. Many of them have closed their churches down and still haven't reopened, which honestly is probably a blessing at this point for those people. They're not being fed anyways in that kind of a church. But to relax the law of God in order to protect their inevitable withering physical health simply puts their eternal spiritual health in severe jeopardy. You believe that? That's why God gives us this law. Look what he says. This is in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Right? That's a group effort. Right? I can't do that by myself, even as a pastor. I need you all. You need each other. Look at verse 25, and here's the command. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. And he says, what next? But encouraging one another in that stirring up one another to love and good works, all the more, that means even more so, as you see the day drawing near. This is not my law, church. If this was my law, you could rightly disregard this. Absolutely could. But it's not. This is the law of God, and to willingly neglect it is not only foolishness, but it's actually sin. It's sin against the Holy God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that to disregard even this command a little bit deserves an eternal punishment in hell? Do you believe that to lie even once deserves the eternal punishment of hell? Do you believe that any one of those relaxing of God's laws sent Christ to the cross? I think we often forget that, don't we? We are to meet together all the more, which means do it even more as the day draws near. What's the day it's talking about? Talking about the day of judgment, right? He's saying the day is the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And here's a question for you. Are we closer today than we were to the day of the Lord than when this passage was written? Yeah. Pretty easy question, right? Of course we are. How close are we? Well, I personally think, and it doesn't matter, but I, I, mean, I know we're much closer, but I think we're very close, right? Many pastors I know are planning their ministries not around decades, but around years, because it is appearing that Christ's return, we don't know this, is very near. And on that day, what does Jesus say about how it's going to go for those who relax God's laws? What does he say? How's it going to go? Not great. Look, I know our culture doesn't like it much, but Jesus' Sermon on the Mount makes this crystal clear. All right? All of God's laws are extremely important. They matter. Just think with me back through our passage that we read this morning. What happens to the tree that doesn't produce good fruit? It's cast into the fire. That's not a refining fire, all right? Sometimes when God's talking about, you know, the fire and stuff, it's, it's refining his people. It's burning off the dross. That's not what he's talking about. This is the judgment fire of hell that he's talking about. What does Jesus say about the one who simply says, Lord, Lord, with their mouth? He says they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven at all. Who is? Verse 21 tells us. The one who does the will of the Father. And that means obedience to God's law. In verse 24, what does it say? It says that simply hearing Jesus' words is not enough. For that is like building your house on the sand, Jesus says. Isn't that what he says? That's what it says right in the passage. I'm not making this up. Look at it. It's like building your house on the sand. Whereas hearing and what? What goes along with that? 
doing, hearing and doing Jesus' words is not like building your house on the sand. It's like building your house on the rock, which means when the storm comes on the day of the Lord, you'll stand. You won't fall. That's what this is talking about. Let me show a few other passages just to ground this, all right? John 14, 15. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Psalm 1, 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will what? Perish. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What's the inverse of that statement? He who does not keep the commandments does not love Christ. They, will, they are the ones who say, Lord, Lord. He says, depart from me. 1 John 2, 3 through 6. For we know that we have come to him. How? If we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, referring to Jesus, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. There's no way around this, church. If we are to cross heaven's trail, we absolutely need the external righteousness that this is talking about. In fact, Jesus told us back in Matthew chapter 5, unless our righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, who are like basically the Navy seals of religious external righteousness, we're not going to make it. We will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet, if that wasn't bad enough, this external righteousness on its own is not enough because what else do we need to cross heaven's trail? This is our second point. We need an internal righteousness, right? Look at Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Look what Jesus says here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's that departure talking about? It's talking about hell. No questions about this. There's no debate here. You know what is absolutely terrifying about the Sermon on the Mount? The internal righteousness that is demanded, which makes the external righteousness, which we just looked at, right? The internal righteousness makes the external righteousness look like a walk in the park. And as we just looked at, that's not a walk in the park. But by comparison to this internal righteousness that you and I need to cross this trail, it's, it's extremely challenging. So if you felt beat up by that first point, we well, better buckle up, Sally, because this one's way more severe. All right, we're just getting into this. Throughout the sermon, what Jesus has been doing with the external obedience of God's law is he's exposing the pride of these religious leaders. He's showing them how their external righteousness, as hard as that actually is, do you know what that is? That's the easy path. 
Simply saying, I'm going to do the right things. I'm going to say the right things. I'm going to be the right kind of person. That's the easy path. That's what Jesus is talking about. The hard road, what? And here's how we're going to say this. As one pastor put it, he says, the easy road is the external road, the outward action road, but the hard road, that's misspelt, is the heart road. Right? The hard road is the heart road. Oh, you're not a murderer, Jesus says. Great. I tell you this. Whoever is angry with his brother or insults him is a murderer at heart and is liable to the fires of hell. You believe in justice? Good. God's a God of justice. You believe in an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? Well, I say this, though. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. In fact, you heard love your friends and hate your enemies? I tell you this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Seem like a tall order? You don't commit adultery. Good. However, I should warn you that whoever even looks at a woman with a lustful intent is an adulterer at heart and is liable to judgment. Come on, preacher. Really? Like, every guy looks, right? You ever heard that expression before? About a billion times, right? What does Jesus say about that mindset? Matthew 5, 29 through 30, he says this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. And this just keeps going all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 6, what does Jesus say? Don't fast trumpeting yourself. Don't fast to show off. Don't give your money to gain favor with others. Don't pray to make yourself look so pious and spiritual. Why, though? Because all of that behavior done in that way is the external road. That's the easy road, right? That's the path that everybody naturally travels down. And this is what Jesus is driving home in our passage this morning. He's saying it's not enough to simply do the right thing, as if we could even do that, right? Not only do we have to do the right things, but we have to do the right things for the right motives. Our heart has to be behind it. External behavior without internal heart change, we say this all the time, is what? Condemnable, not commendable. God hates it. It's filthy rags. And so this is why Jesus is giving the, you know, all these illustrations pop up. Like if you, don't, if you don't see where he's going, this common thread, you're like, okay, all right, he's got an illustration over here. And he's, got, he's like, these metaphors are all over the place. Like, what's he doing? You're supposed to stick with one illustration, Jesus. We can't follow you. No, all of them are making the same point. Jesus is bringing up wolves in what? Sheep's clothing. Trees that bear good fruit and bad fruit. Doing mighty works without actually knowing Christ. What's he doing? He's contrasting the external behavior with the inward heart change that needs to go along with it. You see that? That's what he's doing. And do you realize how terrifying this is? Look at verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? What gives? Why are you sending me away? And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. And he doesn't stop there. What does he call them? Workers of lawlessness. That's law-breaking. That's sin. That's disregard. That's relaxing of God's law. 
And so this means that without the internal righteousness attached to a life of external righteousness, it's a gigantic waste. It does you nothing but make you more guilty before God. I was thinking about this yesterday as a pastor, and I said this was terrifying, and yes, it is. Why? Because for me, what this means is I can spend my entire life preaching the gospel, serving the people of God, maybe even seeing blessings come as the congregation grows, maybe even see new buildings expanded upon and many other wonderful things. And you know what? The terrifying thing is I can do that for the name of Zach Broom. I can do that for myself, for my glory, for my fame, for my honor, all while saying, Lord, Lord, with my lips, but not with my heart. I can make it all about trumpeting my name, not God's. Church, we must never forget how deceitful our sin is. You can go to all the Bible studies in the world. You can, you can actually lead worship on Sundays up here up front, and you know what that can turn into? Let me show you my talents. Let me show you what I can do, right? You might not even say that out loud, but in your heart, right, you tur- we turn it into that so easily. You can clean the building. You can teach Sunday school. You can invite others to church. You can do family worship regularly and lead your family, and you can do it all for the purpose of building your spiritual reckon resume, where it's not about giving praise and honor to Jesus, but about giving praise and honor to yourself. And if that happens, what does Jesus say is the result? What will you hear? Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. I don't think anyone here probably is in this category, but just in case we got someone who thinks they have both the external and the internal righteousness, like, yeah, check, got that, check, got that, I'm good, all right? In case we got somebody here who's that naive, let's look at verse 12. (laughs) What does it say? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and prophets. That's what it all boils down to. Anybody able to do that? Like, this is not the silver rule. We're going to talk about this afterwards in Fellowship and Focus. This is not the silver rule. The silver rule is simply don't do to others that, like, don't punch somebody in the face. Why? Because you don't want them to punch you in the face. That's not the that's a silver rule. This is the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do unto you. That's a massive difference. Is anyone here naive enough to think that they actually have that command of God's law down? That's what they all boils down to, Jesus is saying. Remember, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. None of us have that down. And why? Because none of us meet the external and the internal demands of the law. Not even close. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says this, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Like, he's making this crystal clear here, right? There's not like any room to be like, well, yeah, not everybody, but I'm okay. No, not even one. All right, let's keep going. Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Surely there's not. Of course not, right? Houston, we have a problem though, right? Because in Matthew 5.48, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
All right, so let me get this straight, Jesus. I must be perfect both inwardly and outwardly, but I can't be perfect? How exactly narrow is this narrow road you're talking about here? Who then can enter it? In which the answer is only those who achieve the righteousness of God through an exclusive reliance, which is our final point. What's the difference between the two house builders in Jesus' illustration? They both build a house, right? It's not like Jesus is like, you know, the wise man builds a house and survives a storm, and the foolish man sits out there in his tent and just doesn't build it. Not what he says, is it? They both build a house of, which is representing good works, right? They both build it. So why does the one house stand and the other house fall? Because the foundation upon which it is built, the house that stands is the one that's built upon the rock. And so, church, the two paths are not the good guys versus the bad guys. It's not the evil people versus the wicked people. Anybody heard it preached that way before? That's not what it's talking about. It's not people who wash their hands after going to the bathroom and those who don't. I kind of want to take that one back, actually, but the text won't support it. The two paths here are simple. The path of grace and the path of works. That's it. We are all born on the path of works. That's what we're after. The wide path is the path of self-righteousness, of works righteousness. It's the scale system. Believe in God. God, do that. But if you do more good than bad, you'll, you'll probably be okay. In fact, in fact, you will be okay. Just do more good than bad. Don't try to be a bad person. You know, do the right things. Say the right things. Try to be a good person. And you know what? God, he's, he's a pretty relaxed guy. He'll, he'll give you a happy life and bring you to heaven when you die. Just do that. Yeah, you got to believe in Jesus. That's part of it. But, you know, the narrow path is a life that, yes, it does try to do the right things. The narrow path does try to say the right things. It does try to be a good person, but the narrow path is not relying on that for righteousness. What are those on the narrow path actually relying on? The rock. That's what they're building their foundation upon. What is the rock, church? Christ. Christ's righteousness. Those who are on the narrow path are relying on Christ's righteousness, not their own, which is why Paul writes in Romans 10, 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And why does Jesus end seeking righteousness through the law? Because of what he said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 17, Matthew 5, 17, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I'm not coming to get rid of it. I have not come to abolish them, but what? Fulfill them. That's what he says, to fulfill them, to fill them full. I want to read for us this morning, Romans chapter 8. and I want to read all 14 verses here, 1 through 14, because Paul says this better than I ever could, because Paul's speaking through the power of the Spirit, all right? It's not, it's not my fault. There's no contest there. This is God himself speaking. Here's what Paul writes through the power of God. There is therefore now no condemnation. We know what that word means, right? To be condemned. 
There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. We who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Right? That's sinful stuff, things of this world. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's enmity, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who now dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You see the perfect balance there? How he wraps all of this together? It's not like, hey, just believe in Jesus, trust in his righteousness, and sin away. No. If you're in Christ, you're going to put to death the deeds of the flesh, the sins, the disobedience of God's law. But how are you going to do it? In your spiritual power? In your abilities? No. In God's. That's what he's saying. There are those who are on the narrow path, and they're on it simply because they are resting in the righteousness of Christ Jesus, their rock, which alone enables us to perfectly meet the righteous requirements of the law. And how does this happen? Give me a lot of scripture today, but... It's good scripture. Luke 18, Jesus tells us how this happens through another story. He says this, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this to God, God, I thank you that I am not like the other man, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. For I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have you. And then verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. 
Church, there is only one path to heaven. It's the narrow path. And it's a turnstile path, right? Like, you know those turnstiles where like, you're not going to fit five three people through that thing at once, okay? It's one at a time, which means you don't get in through this path because your family's in this path, because your siblings are in this path, because your mom and dad kids are on this path, right? You don't get on this, kids. You have to, because of your parents, you don't even get into this because of your church. You only get in You only get through and by this narrow gate by personally trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. As your Savior to give you his righteousness, which is the only thing that will prevent him from one day saying, depart from me, I never knew you. And when you trust in Christ for your righteousness, do you know what happens? Fruit. (laughs) Lots of fruit. Why? Because the tree produces fruit, right? Good fruit. Can a bad tree produce bad fruit and a good tree produce... Can it, we got that reversed. Can a good tree produce bad fruit and a bad tree produce good fruit? No. What is our tree now? It's Christ. That's what we're resting for our righteousness. And so we do produce the good fruit that is required. And this is the thing. This is so backwards. People will tell you, you know what, you want to go to heaven? You better produce enough fruit. That's your mentality. You're on the path to hell. You see that's what Jesus is teaching? If you think the path to heaven is producing enough righteousness, doing enough good things, you're actually on the wide path, which leads to hell. Instead, we do produce fruit, but we do so because we have trusted in the righteousness of Christ, which gives us God's spirit, which gives us the power to begin changing and producing the fruit and obeying the commands that God calls us to obey. You know the other thing it does? It does something we can never do on our own. It changes our heart to want to do these things, to want to obey God's law. And so, a bit to your surprise, when this happens, you find yourself loving your enemies. You find yourself praying for those who persecute you, even though your flesh still wants to slap them, okay? You find yourself not judging others with the law in a self-righteous way. Why? Because, you know, it says, judge not lest you be judged. And we don't judge people how we don't want to be judged. We judge them with grace, right? Because that's what we have professed to go to God and say, God, please don't judge me with the law. Judge me with your grace, please. Right? And so we find ourselves treating others this way. I was talking to Craig last week at at my house that came over. He had a good point. He's, we were talking about how often in the church you'll get these people who, you know, up here who are like, oh, we are so, we're, so, we're the ones that do everything. Look at us. You know, that kind of mentality. And they look down upon, you know, these Christians who don't have it all together and are having problems and sin, right? And he had a good point. He said, the church is a nursery. And we have to realize that. Like, if, you got, if you're in sixth grade, like, and you come up to a six-month-old and you're like, what are you doing? You just spit up all over. What's your problem? Get it together. You know, like, no, that doesn't understand grace. The church is a nursery. The old expression would say the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. That's the point. So when we come to understand grace, the grace of God, that spills over into our life. We start treating our spouse with grace because God treated us with grace when we didn't deserve it. We start treating our family members with grace 
because God treated us with grace, though we didn't deserve it. And you know what else happens? We all start treating each other in this church with grace because God treated us with grace when we did not deserve it. On the Oregon Trail, one of the early pioneers was a missionary named Marcus Whitman, who along with his wife, Narcissa, followed that difficult path in order to bring the gospel of salvation to those who were lost and desperately needed it. Yes, it was hard. Yes, it was a difficult path, and they faced many trials and obstacles. They believed it was worth it. So much so that they gave up their very lives for the sake of the gospel as they were murdered by the very Indian tribe that they were attempting to save through the power of the gospel. And why did they believe that this hard path was worth following? I mean, it was, it was literally a hard path, but it also, you know, it wasn't just the path. It was the end of it that was difficult with them losing their lives. Why then did they believe that this was worth following? It's because they knew that their Savior had followed the hardest path of all for them when he was led up a path to a hill where he suffered, where he bled, and he died for them upon a tree. And so, church, it is only because Christ traveled the ultimate difficult path for us that we can travel this path of faith, which leads us to eternal life with him. Which path are you on? You're in the wide path, doing the whole self-righteous thing. Does it look pretty good, but inwardly it's a mess? Or are you on the narrow path? Are you on the path that is poor in spirit? Because you realize Christ's immense worth. This is right back at the very start, the Beatitudes. Are you on the path that mourns over your sin? And out of your mourning you seek comfort, not in yourself, but in Christ. The path that is meek for you realize his greatness and supreme worth. The path that hungers and thirsts for a righteousness not our own and finds that satisfaction perfectly in Christ's perfect righteousness. I trust by his grace you are. Father, we thank you for this text, this just wonderful sermon that we've been able to study. The greatest sermon of all time, which comes from your one and only Son. And so, Father, we just thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the righteousness that you impute to us through Christ's work upon the cross, who sacrificed himself to pay the penalty of our sin, of our lawlessness, of our relaxing of your laws, in order that we might be called the sons and daughters of God. So, Father, I just pray for the one here who does not know you, Today would be the day of salvation. That right now, they would just turn to you, confess their sins, and ask for the salvation that you offer freely and fully to them through Jesus. Father, I pray for the Christian who's been relaxing your laws. I pray, Lord, that through the power of your Spirit, that they would reflect upon the gospel again, upon what it costs to forgive their law relaxing, their law breaking. They would see that breaking your laws grieves your spirit. But ultimately, Lord, we ask that we would all, as a people, rest in the righteousness of Christ. 
for your glory and our good. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In closing, we're actually going to sing two songs. We're going to sing first in Christ alone, which pretty much perfectly wraps up what we've been talking about. But then we're also going to sing Jesus paid it all, which tells us why we can rest in Christ alone.